Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. If they caught you, they would cut off your hands. If they caught you, they would cut off your feet and cut off your ears and cut off your tongue and gouge out your eyes. And if they let you live, you would really only be dying slowly. Otherwise, they would cut off your head and they would put it in a pile or they might hang it in the trees like a Christmas ornament. These were the Assyrians. They were a wicked and evil people. And we know from God's word through the book of Jonah that God sent the prophet Jonah to the capital city of Assyria, to Nineveh, to tell the Ninevites to repent and to change their ways and to stop doing these things. And they listened to Jonah. But as we come to the book of Nahum, 100 plus years later, the Ninevites had gone back to their wicked ways. And now Nahum has come to tell them that it's too late. It's too late. Judgment is coming and they will be wiped out. We're in the book of Nahum. Continuing our series, the gospel according to Nahum. And when we hear the words that Nahum speaks today, we'll wonder, is there any gospel in that? It's so dark and gloomy but it is an appropriate title for our series because Nahum is preaching the gospel. Nahum is a few books to the right of Jonah, if that helps you find your way. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, you are infinitely glorious. And you are holy and there is no one, no thing like you. And I was reminded of that this morning out of Isaiah 6, where we see the seraphim, these creatures with three sets of wings flying around your throne. One set of wings, Father, makes them dart to and fro around you. And... The other sets of wings are used, one to cover their feet and one to cover their eyes. Not because they are sinful, God, because they are perfect. They have never sinned. But they're in your presence and you're so overwhelming. They have to hide their feet and hide their eyes as they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they've never sinned. And yet, you invite us, sinners, into your presence. And we come with a truckload of sin. And in the gospel, you say that you forgive it because Jesus never sinned. Because he lived a perfect life and he died in our place. And you raised him from the dead. And through the gospel, you cover us with his perfection, that we may come into your presence and we don't have to hide our eyes. We can gaze upon your beauty. And God, as we come to your word this morning, would you 
send your spirit once again to open our eyes to behold the gospel, to behold Jesus and to be transformed for your glory. Do it now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There's no such thing as monsters. There are no monsters under your bed, in your closet, or anywhere in your room. No doubt those are phrases that every parent has probably uttered to each of their children. I'm still saying it a lot, still trying to convince a few of my children that there are no monsters in their room. If monsters did exist, they would be the most patient creatures in all the world as they wait night after night, as the buffet is laid before them, but they patiently wait and don't partake of the culinary delights known as children. They're so patient. The fact of the matter, though, is that monsters do exist. There may be no monsters in our kids' room, in the closet, or under their beds, but there is a monster in their bed. There is a monster in every bed, in every house. There is a monster inside of every human being, inside every bed, in every room, and in every house. The monster that I'm describing is sin. Sin, indwelling sin, resides in every human heart. In mine, and if you didn't know it, in yours. That's why we need Puritan preacher Ralph Venning to help us understand the monster of sin. His book, The Sinfulness of Sin, which was originally published in 1669, four years after the Great Plague of London. The original title was Sin, the Plague of Plagues. Venning says this, It cannot be but extremely useful to let men see what sin is, how prodigiously vile, how deadly mischievous, and therefore how monstrously ugly and odious a thing sin is. That which sin is accused of and proved to be guilty of is high treason against God. It attempts nothing less than the dethroning and the ungodding of God himself. It has unmanned Man made him a fool, a beast, a devil, and subjected him to the wrath of God and made him liable to eternal damnation. It has made men deny that God is or affirm that he is like themselves. It has put the Lord of life to death and shamefully crucified the Lord of glory. It is always resisting the Holy Spirit. It is continuously practicing the defiling, the dishonor, the deceiving, and the destruction of all men. What a prodigious, devilish thing sin is. It is impossible to speak worse of sin than it really is, or even as badly of it as it really deserves, for it is hyperbolically sinful. There are not enough words. We need more and stronger ones to speak of its vileness. And if we were to say that it is worse than death and the devil, the very hell of hell, this would not be to rail at it, but to tell it only the truth about itself. 
Sin is the quintessence of evil. It has made all the evils that there are and is itself worse than the evils it has made. It is not only ugly, but ugliness. Not only filthy, but filthiness. Not only abominable, but abomination. There is not a worse thing in hell itself. Shall I not plead for God and your soul and entreat you to be on God's side and to depart from the tents of wickedness? Poor soul, can you find it in your heart to hug and embrace such a monster as this? Will you love that which hates God and which God hates? God forbid. There is a monster in every human heart. And that monster's name is sin. And that is why the prophet Nahum is preaching to Nineveh. It's too late for Nineveh. But the reader of Nahum is supposed to be shocked by what Nahum describes in his prophecy. When we see the Lord responding to sin, the reader is to be shocked and then to ask him or herself, can I find it in my heart to hug and embrace such a monster as this? Our big idea today is this. Sin can't deliver what it promises But God can. You see, sin promises to deliver so much, but it can never deliver. Sin promises to refresh you. It promises to reinvigorate and to revitalize and revive and restore and stimulate and freshen and energize and exhilarate you. Sin promises unending pleasure. Sin promises to quench and to satiate, and to satisfy, and to slake your thirst. But sin cannot, and sin will not ever deliver on its promises. God, on the other hand, can. God promises things, and he delivers. God promises to deal with sin and God promises to reward those who run from sin and cling to him to give himself as the reward. What God promises concerning sin, he will deliver. The city of Nineveh fell for the lies of sin. Their hearts hugged and embraced the monster of sin. They thought sin would bring them pleasure and refresh them and satisfy them. But Nahum has shown up to tell them that their indulgence in sin has caused Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, to bring the heat, if you will. And that's exactly what the Lord is about to do. The city of Nineveh is about to experience the gory side of the gospel. Look at verse 3 in the middle there. Hear the words of this God. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. And the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks 
are broken into pieces by him. Don't hear Nahum's words and suppose God to be a monster. God is not a monster. God is showing up precisely to deal with the monster of sin. He is not the monster. Sin is the monster. How does God react to sin? We've read it in his words. Does he take it lightly? Obviously, no. But why does God sometimes delay in dealing with sin? Ralph Venning said, It is true, if God were to judge as fast as men sin, the world would soon be depopulated and at an end. That's an understatement, isn't it? But his patience is now an argument of his judgment to come. At that time, when God sends men to hell and damns them, they will know and acknowledge what an evil thing sin was and what bitterness it brings in the latter end. Since damnation is such a dreadful thing, no less than the pouring out of God's wrath on, on sinners forever, we must conclude that sin is extremely displeasing to God because it is contrary to him. That can be no little matter for which God brings on men such grave damnation. See, people and nations keep sinning and God waits and God waits. But his waiting and his patience should never be understood as God overlooking sin. God will deal with sin in his time. Ultimately, he will deal with it by punishing sin, by punishing sinners, those who have not turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus. He will punish it forever in eternity in hell. He promises to do that. And sin is so serious in God's eyes that he punished his son, sinless son, Jesus Christ, in order to bring those who would trust in him to himself. And that's why God is described this way in Nahum, because Nineveh was wicked. We know what they were like. They were violent. They were gruesome. But it wasn't just their, their particular sins, you know, cutting off hands and gouging out eyes that caused the Lord to respond like this. It was because they had broken his commandments. They were born sinners. They had broken his commandments. They had disrupted shalom in this world, peace and wholeness, well-being, the way God designed it. They had perverted all of that. God is against All sin. It doesn't matter what color, shape, or size it is. He's against sin. He's against shootings that happen in movie theaters. And he's against little white lies that we tell in order to make ourselves look better in people's eyes. God is against all sin. Republicans are against big government. Democrats want to help everybody out. They want to help everyone out. Libertarians. Wikipedia can't even fully describe libertarians. And God, he is against sin. How does the Lord respond to sin? Verse 3 says that his way is in whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. When Nahum says that the Lord's way is in the whirlwind and storm, he means that the Lord is on a journey, that he is treading a path, that he is marching out to battle as a divine warrior. When Nahum says the Lord is, is, is marching in this way, he says the Lord is on a war path. 
You want to know how the Lord rolls? How's the Lord roll, as we say? He's on a war path against sin. He marches out as a divine warrior. Why? Because sin makes promises that it can never deliver on. But he can and will deliver on his promise. It's interesting that Nahum describes the Lord as marching out to battle in this way because the Assyrian kings, if you read their descriptions of their conquest, they describe themselves as marching out as storms into battle. And Nahum kind of takes what they're used to describing in their literature and their military conquests and he turns it back around and he says, you're not the divine warrior who rides on the storms. Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, is the one who marches out to battle. When Nahum says that the clouds are the dust of his feet, get the idea out of your mind that he's speaking of the the white puffy clouds that we see and we we lay in the grass and we try to find shapes and animals and like, ooh, there's a giraffe. Do you see it? Do you see it? Nahum is not talking about white puffy clouds. Nahum is talking about dark clouds ominous storm clouds that you see looming on the horizon that are making their way towards you. That's what Nahum says. That's what he means when he says that clouds are the dust of the Lord's feet. He's referring to dark, ominous storm clouds that contain hell and and, and rain and that they cause destruction and flesh floods and produce tornadoes listen if you've been on the central coast your whole life and you've never experienced a tornado warning i'm not sure you can grasp the the depth of this passage when i read this passage my papers blow like this Because I grew up in Oklahoma in Tornado Alley. And this was every spring for us, running up to our neighbor's house, getting down into their cellar, hoping the tornado doesn't wipe our house out. So when I read Nahum, the pages blow. Maybe your Bible doesn't do that. But mine does. My whole life has been shaped to some degree every spring by what a tornado can do. Last spring... We experienced this as a family. We're watching the news and we see all these tornadoes popping up on the TV screen around our area where we lived. And so we start moving the kids down into the bathroom. And as we're watching it, it's like, it looks like it's right on top of us. So I run upstairs, look out the bedroom window and there's this bright flash of lightning and I see this funnel cloud. I don't know how far away it was, but I'm thinking, this is it. It's coming. And I run back downstairs. Everybody gets in the little half bath with every... Uh, couch cushion and pillow that we could find and we're all crammed in there waiting for this storm to come well we're still here so we survived but our fence didn't several sections of our fence were taken out no tornado made it through our neighborhood but the winds were strong enough that our fence was destroyed and you know there's hail damage and all things like that the storm was so scary that tabitha our our oldest daughter, who was not yet three at the time, said this to me several weeks ago. She says, Daddy, remember that time that scary monster was going to eat us and we had to hide in the bathroom? And I said, as all parents do, there's no such thing as monsters. There's no such thing as monsters. We never hid in the bathroom from a monster. And she said, yes, we did at our house in Texas. 
the tornado monster was going to get us. That's the imagery, the storm imagery that Nahum wants to evoke. Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, is riding out the rider on the storm. He is on a mission. He is on a war path against the monster known as sin. Why? Because the monster of sin has promised something to humanity and it cannot deliver. And God is showing up to deliver on his promise to deal with sin. Picture the Lord marching out to battle and the storm clouds are behind him. He is, he's like a, a horse rider in a movie who's charging and you see the dust billowing up behind him. The Lord is marching out as a divine warrior. It's not dust that's blowing up behind him. It's these dark, ominous storm clouds. And there's rain and there's hail and there's thunder and lightning There's whirlwind, there's tornadoes, there's hurricane-like winds, tropical storms. All of this is billowing up behind the Lord as he marches out to battle against sin. This is not the first time that the Lord marched out to battle against sin as a divine warrior stirring up dark, ominous storm clouds behind him. In Genesis 3.8, after Adam and Eve had listened to the lie of Satan, of the serpent, of the devil, who promised them life and freedom and pleasure and fulfillment if they would just eat from the one tree that God said they should not eat of. He promised them fulfillment. And they believed his lie. And so God responds in Genesis 3.8, and Adam and Eve heard the sound of, of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What happened after Adam and Eve sinned? They tried to hide from God. And how did God show up? Walking in the cool of the day in the garden? That's what we've been taught. But do you think that's how a holy God would respond after his servants had just disobeyed him and wrecked his world? Does he come walking through, kind of traipsing through the garden, whistling zippity-doo-dah? No. The Lord shows up and he's packing heat, if you will. He did not show up skipping and whistling in the cool of the day, because if he did, why are Adam and Eve hiding? They're hiding because they're scared. Traditionally, this verse has been translated as the ESV does it that I just read with this phrase. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Two observations from Hebrew here. The Hebrew word here for for cool is, is the Hebrew word ruach. It's usually translated as wind. So I think the first thing that, that Moses is saying is that the Lord is showing up in wind not in the cool central coast air of of the garden. The second word is the Hebrew word for day. It's the Hebrew word yom. It may be, it's related to this Akkadian, another uh, Northwest Semitic language. It's related to this other language, which means storm. There are two Hebrew words in Hebrew for yom. There's yom number one, if you look it up in a dictionary, and it means day, which is why the translations pick day. Yom number two means storm. 
So if we adopt the second definition of the word day there, I think it reads this way, Genesis 3.8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the wind of the storm. Not the cool of the day, but walking in the wind of the storm. So Genesis 3.8 pictures Adam and Eve hiding from the Lord because they just sinned, but the Lord is not on some after-dinner stroll. He is coming in judgment to judge his disobedient servants. In fact, I think the sound that Adam and Eve heard, as Moses says there in verse 8, that caused them to hide in fear wasn't just a gentle breeze, that perhaps it was a tornado, this violent wind blowing through the Garden of Eden. Yahweh showed up in Genesis 3 the same way he shows up here in Nahum chapter 1. He shows up, and when he shows up, he's stirring up dark, ominous storm clouds as he marches out to battle. He shows up because he promised Adam and Eve, our first parents, that they would die if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2, verses 16 through 17 And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There's God's promise to deal with sin. You can have anything you want all the time, but that one tree over there, don't even touch it. And if you do, you shall surely die. God promised to deal with sin. And he comes out as a divine warrior to confront Adam and Eve. Fortunately, the Lord extended grace and mercy to Adam and Eve, mercifully covered them in their sin, even though they, like every one of us, experience spiritual death. And even though they, like us, every one of us, will experience physical death, God promised to deal with with their sin. And that's why we're all messed up. Satan, sin, promised Adam and Eve, but it could not deliver. So the Lord came into the garden to judge his disobedient servants as he will come on the final day to judge sin as he was about to come upon the inhabitants of Nineveh in Nahum's day. You see, sin cannot deliver what it promises you but God can. Look at verse four with me. The Lord rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Three observations when Nahum says that the Lord rebukes the sea and the rivers and they dry up. One is that Nineveh was surrounded by water and it depended on this natural defense system to keep their enemies at bay. And they prided themselves on the fact that it's hard to attack us because the rivers and the waters are protecting our city. And Yahweh comes and says, you know what? I can rebuke the waters and make them dry. You are not safe from me, Nineveh. 
The second thing is that should uh, get our minds thinking back to the book of Exodus when the Lord brought his people out of Egypt and he rebuked the waters and they were dry and his people walked across and then he let the waters loose again to drown out Pharaoh and his army. Third observation was Nahum rebukes. When, the, when Nahum says the Lord rebukes, he means that the Lord utters a loud, angry battle cry that is supposed to scare his enemies and drive them away. That's what the Hebrew word means here in this military context. So, so you have to picture kind of like in the two towers in Lord of the Rings as the good guys are at Helm's Deep and, and the orcs are marching towards them and they're breaking through the walls and it seems like it's all going to end up on the horizon on the hilltop. Here comes Gandalf. And you see him marching with the army of Rohirrim or whatever army it was. And you see Gandalf start descending the hill and he lets out this large warrior battle cry. And the light goes forth and wipes out and takes out a handful of the orc army. That's how you need to picture the Lord showing up and uttering this battle cry. That when he does, it dries up rivers and withers Lebanon. That's how the Lord appears to deal with sin. His battle cry not only startles his enemies and scares them, his battle cry dries up the sea and the raging rivers. In the ancient Near East, the sea was seen as a symbol for evil. The Mediterranean Sea, when you looked out at it, you said, that's chaos, that's evil. Why? Because your best friend goes out on a boat to catch fish, and he gets swept away by the sea, and so you scratch your head and say, that's chaos, that's evil. I don't want to go out into the sea. So they described chaos and evil by referring to the sea. This is why the disciples freak out when Jesus calms the wind and the wave on the boat because they realize, whoa, you just calmed evil. You just calmed chaos. Nobody could calm a sea or stop a thunderstorm. The sea is a symbol for evil and chaos throughout the whole Bible. In Revelation 21 Verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. You should read that verse and be like, Oh, man, the sea, no sea on the new earth? Bummer, rip off. We love the ocean. We love the sea on the central coast, don't we? But if we understand the way the Bible uses the sea, that it's a picture of chaos. We realize that John is not saying that there will be no oceans and no seas on the new earth because God created the sea in Genesis 1 and the ocean. And what did he call it? Good. And he filled it with a lot of things that he called good. So John does not mean for us to take this verse literally. Literally, John is saying the same thing that Nahum is saying. God will destroy evil and sin. He promises to deal with sin and he delivers on his promises. John is saying when he says the sea is no more that sin and chaos and the destruction and perversion of shalom and wholeness and peace will be gone forever. 
Nahum also describes in verse 4 the effects of the Lord's battle march as withering and drying out Bashan, Carmel, and Lebanon. These areas were very fertile regions in Israel. They were some of the most fertile regions with very thick forests with cedars. They were well watered. The whole area was this lush landscape. And I think that Nahum is saying this is a picture of fertility. I think Nahum picked this and describes it, even though the Lord come and could come and literally do this, dry up a sea. He did it in Exodus. I think Nahum has picked this because this area is a picture of a lush, pleasant, fertile, vibrant landscape. And I think he's saying this is a picture of sin. It is a picture of the refreshment that sin promises to you and that sin promises to me. A life of sin and rebellion seems like this tranquil sea. It seems like flowing rivers. It seems like lush vineyards. It seems like fertile lands, but not in God's eyes. Sin comes to us. It comes to you and it comes to me. And it promises us freedom. It describes itself as this lush, fertile thing that we can enjoy and relax. It promises refreshment. It promises to cool us off. It promises to refresh us. Sin promises to reinvigorate and to revitalize and revive and restore and stimulate and freshen and energize and exhilarate us. Sin promises to quench, to satiate and to satisfy and to slake our thirst. But sin can't deliver what it promises, but God can. Nahum also describes the effect of the Lord's battle march and the effect it has on the rest of creation. He says, mountains quake, hills melt, and the earth heaves. The mountains and hills were a symbol for the earth's stability. They are utterly destroyed by the Lord. Again, I think it's a picture of the shallow, weak, unstable promises of sin. Sin promises us stability. But when the Lord shows up, the foundations crumble. Nahum is not describing the Lord here as Mr. Creation Destroyer. It's not like the Lord loves to show up and say, I'm just going to wipe out the world that I created. God loves his creation. He is showing up to judge and destroy sin and sinners because sin promises us things that it cannot deliver, but God can. I mentioned Ralph Vinning earlier, the Puritan pastor. He says this about sin. Sin disappoints men. They have false joys, but true miseries. Understand that about sin. The joy that it promises us, it's false. It's not real. And when we give in, the misery is true. The misery is real. Sin has false joys and true miseries. 
He says, it is like the pleasure of the man who receives much money, but it is all counterfeit. Imagine tomorrow morning, if someone came to you and said, hey, I want to pay off your school debt, any of your credit card debt. I want to pay off your mortgage, your car payments. And I want, and on top of that, I want to give you $10,000 cash. Just meet me at the bank at 9 a.m. And you're like, wow, man, God, you're being good. Hope you say that. You show up at the bank and he's like, hey, I've taken care of everything. I've got $10,000 cash in this bag. And he reaches in and he pulls out Monopoly money. How are you going to feel? In that moment, that's what sin does. Sin lies because it's a monster. As we close, we must listen to Nahum's rhetorical question in verse 6. You, you know the answer. You won't scratch your head and say, hmm, I wonder if anybody could. You, you know how we've just described the Lord, how Nahum has done that. I don't think you'll be stumped by Nahum's question in verse 6, but let's hear it again. He says, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The answer we all know is nobody. Nobody can stand before a holy God who is packing heat. Who can endure the heat of his anger? No one. He shows up, pours out fire and wrath on sinners and sin. His wrath is so powerful, it can take gigantic boulders and reduce them to pebbles. Who is this God? He's the Lord. And he's coming again to judge this world and to wipe out his enemies. The Lord is coming to get us. The Lord is coming to get every human being who has ever lived. He's coming to get us. I used to say this to my son Asher when he was about two or three. Tuck him in bed at night, read a little Bible story, pray with him. And then I would say, Jesus is coming back to get us. And I began to notice every time I said this, that he got this scared look on his face. So one night I said it again. Oh, Asher, Jesus is coming back to get us. And he said softly and respectfully, Daddy, I don't want him to. I said, what do you mean? Don't you want Jesus to come back? And he said, yes, but I don't want him to get me. And then it dawned on me. He thinks Jesus is coming back to get him the way that a monster would get us. The way that we say, I'm going to get you. And then I explained to Asher what I meant when I said that Jesus is coming back to get us. Let me say two things to the two kinds of people we have here. The truth is that Jesus is coming back to get us. He is coming back on dark, ominous storm clouds. But, and these are the first people I want to address. If you are a Christian, he is coming back to get you, but it is a good kind of getting you want him to come back and get you. But until he comes to take you to be with him forever, be aware and understand that sin promises you things. It promises to cool you off, but it's a lie. It will not provide refreshment. Only Jesus can satisfy your parched thirst. 
weary soul. God already brought the heat, if you will, on Jesus for you at the cross. So you can rejoice in that today. You can take a gospel plunge today. You can dive into the fountain of living waters. You can see Jesus as your greatest treasure. He can satisfy your heart because Christian... God already poured every last ounce of his anger out on his son for you, for your sins. Christian, you will never experience the anger of God. Do you understand that? God poured every drop of his anger at your sin and at my sin on his son. And his son absorbed it up like a sponge. And we will never experience his anger. Christian, God is not angry at you. If you're a Christian, if you've repented and trusted in his son. The other kind of people that I want to talk to are those who are not Christians. Jesus is coming back to get you. And I fear for you. And I pray that God would open your eyes right now to see that Jesus is coming back to get you the way Nahum describes here and you will not be able to stand in his presence. Jesus is coming back to destroy his enemies, to send them to hell where they experience the heat of his anger forever. But it's not too late. It was too late for Nineveh when Nahum was preaching. But if you're breathing and you've got a pulse, it's not too late. Repent. Cry out to Jesus right now. Say, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I was born a sinner. I didn't ask to be a sinner, but it's true. I've disobeyed your commandments. I've lived for myself. I've offended you. God, have mercy on me. Help me to see Jesus on the cross fully absorbing your anger and wrath at my sin and help me to see Jesus' perfect, sinless life coming to me. Trust God that he already brought the heat on Jesus for your sins. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Who can stand before the throne of God? Who can stand before the throne of a holy God? Only those who run to Jesus. Only those who are satisfied with all that God is for us in his son. Only those who are made alive by the spirit of God through the gospel. Only those who take a deep drink out of the fountain of living water. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, sin promises you relief. Sin says, come and drink and you will be satisfied. Sin says it to the non-believer and it says it to the believer. 
And when we go to sin and we believe it's lies, it's like going to the ocean when you are so thirsty and drinking the salt water. And what does it do to you? It just makes you more thirsty. It can never satisfy. Listen, the gospel is people who are weary in the desert who come and say, I'm so thirsty. Just give me something to drink. The gospel is come to the fountain of living waters and drink and drink and drink all that God is for you in Jesus and be satisfied. And you will say, ah, that's what it means to be a Christian. That Jesus satisfies you more than anything, any person in this world. Will you come and drink again this morning? It's free. Oh, Father. There are people here that don't know you. Would you grant them repentance now? Open their eyes to see the beauty of the gospel. And may they run to the fountain of living water. And take a deep drink and be satisfied. And God, there are many of us, your children, who have been listening to the deceitful lies of sin. And we've been trying to drink from toilets that haven't been flushed in weeks. Would you help us to see it will not satisfy? Would you help your children come this morning and drink out of the fountain of living water, to come to the fertile lands of the gospel, to see the stability that the gospel brings? And may we drink deep before your throne this morning because of Jesus. And then may you get great glory as we go tell others those who are begging for something to satisfy them. May we go to others as a fellow beggar and say, I found something that will satisfy. His name is Jesus. Amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.